If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. International Horse College's motto is People Safety and Horse Welfare, and you'll find this message throughout our chats. Registered Training Organisation number 31352. Today I'd like to introduce you to Amanda Hocking. Amanda's done FEI dressage, show jumped and three-day evented as a rider, still riding and competing and also coaching riders to that level. Amanda's also a coach educator. How are you today, Amanda? I'm very well, thank you, Glennis. Great, great. Amanda, can you tell me a quote that you use, a favourite quote that you might use for your riders, for yourself, and a bit of a story about it? I'm very keen on quoting lots of well-known people, but one that struck a chord with me, and I've kept it with me for a long time in my diaries, is we cannot direct the wind, but we can adjust our sails. And that was said by a young girl called Gabby Webby, who at 18 years of age is one of the youngest women to sail around the world and also cancer survivor. And she's such an inspiration to many women and young women especially that that particular quote resonated with me. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it before, but it's a good story. How does it relate to you with your students, with your horses? What sort of examples can you give me about a time where you may have used it to inspire someone or give them some direction or how you've just done it as a bit of self-talk to give yourself direction? Well, I think most people, not just riders and trainers and people who work with horses, things happen in their life with their work or with their horses or with their families. And it's very easy to be reactionary to these problems, especially with horses. Many people in Australia train on their own because of distances, etc. And things start to go a little pear-shaped and we get frustrated. Things start to happen around us that we feel we don't have any control and we become reactionary to them. And we're actually dealing, especially with horses, we're dealing with an animal that is very reactionary. And it's important that for ourselves that we take the time to settle down and have a look at where we're at and think about the things that are important with our riding, not to lose sight of our goals, even though it's all, you know, we might have to come around it a different way. We may have to go and ask somebody for help in a different way. Like, for instance, you're promoting information via podcasts. Well, that's a wonderful way to gather educational tools. And, you know, we've got YouTube, we've got the internet now. All, all these are all wonderful things we can use if we can't necessarily have somebody in the arena with us all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Just tell me a little bit about how you started with horses and your first memories of that. I started riding when I was about eight years old. You may detect I've got a little bit of a, an English accent. <laughs> I, <laughs> My family lived abroad when we were very young, and then we went back to England, and my parents or my mother encouraged us to, you know, to take up various hobbies and pastimes when we moved back to England. And one of the things I had a, a great yearning to be was an ice skater. Mm -hmm. And we lived in the south coast of England and the nearest ice skating ring 
was 30 miles away in Brighton. And whilst in Australia that's not a very big distance, in England that's a massive distance to take your child every Saturday morning for a lesson. Anyway, my mother was very good and she said, all right, well, we'll take you off. And I think it was eight at the time. Took me off to this ice skating rink to meet this sort of Olympic trainer and he um, put some boots on me and took me out into the middle of the ice, my mum, and looked me up and down. He said, nope, she will never be an ice skater. And I sort of thought, oh, okay. And my mother said, why? And he said, her legs are not straight. <laughs> and that was that. And he took her skater wow. off the rig. And I thought I was a little bit sort of, you know, oh, okay, there goes that particular Olympic ambition. And my mother said, well, that's all right. She said, there's a riding school at the end of the driveway where we live. You can go and learn how to ride horses and just make sure you buy horses that have got straight legs. And that's how it all started. started. My mother rode when she was young and Mm -hmm. she felt like, okay, you know, we'll buy an animal that has straight legs if I couldn't pass the muster. (laughs) That's great, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) All right. And then you started riding there, you had lessons. Were you one of the typical kids who hang around the riding school, do all the odd jobs, you know, just to get a bit of a free ride or just, you know, just to be there in the environment with all the other horses and all the other kids? Absolutely, absolutely. We, we were very Sewellian looking, this riding school. Mm-hmm. We had a collection of motley looking kids that used to ha- hang around all over the weekends and they used to get us cleaning boxes and, uh, you know, shifting hay. In fact, I, I'm very proud of the fact that I could actually wheelbarrow four bales of very heavy hay, four bales on one wheelbarrow across <laughs> muddy yards and, and all sorts of things. And yeah, so, so that's what we did on the weekends. And then I sort of got to the point where I was actually half useful to them and they would start to give me lessons. Mm-hmm. One of the riding schools that I went to give me lessons in return for my work on the weekends. Good. And when I was about 11, I actually started teaching. I mean, highly sort of not allowed now. I mean, shudder at the thought of an 11-year-old giving lessons and being paid for it. But in those days, you know, they they were quite happy to have it. And I was naturally very bossy and nobody ever challenged me that I did or did not know what I was talking about. They just did as they were told and that's how things got done. Okay. So from there, did you just automatically assume that that's what your career was? Was there anything else? How did that work out? I think my parents hoped for quite a long time that I would change my mind a little bit and not want to work with horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it's a, it's, you know, it's a huge industry in England, it's still not a very well-paid one. And I think they were hoping that I would go off into something other than horses. But no, I stuck it out. And I only passed enough education to uh, qualify me to take out my British Horse Society qualifications. That's all I did. And uh, as soon as I um, could, I, uh, I did that, you know, did the British qualifications because I actually actually came to Australia before I was 18 and was too young to do my British Horse Society instructor certificate and I was in Australia for about two years and then I went back and did those qualifications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In Australia at that time we didn't have anything Yep. and this would have been about sort of the late 70s early 80s and there wasn't any formal qualification available in Australia at the time but whilst I was in England doing the British ones, in Australia they had a gentleman by the name of Tor Berman come out from Sweden, I believe, yeah. and he started the NCAS coaching accreditation scheme that we have now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As soon as I got back 
to Australia, I think within a year of coming back to Australia, we had some exams take place down at the Australian Question Academy down at Wallington yep. in Victoria. And a group of us were invited to participate. And that was how the ball got rolling, I think. Okay. Now, you've already said that you were bossy and no one challenged you. What, what other skills do you need to have a career with horses, you know? <laughs> Certainly, you have to have be a little bit confident. I mean, it, it has altered a lot these days. I mean, in sort of when I was a, a younger woman, the horse industry in Australia was predominantly male, especially around the thoroughbred industry or the stud industry. And you had to be a little, you couldn't be a sort of, you know, wilting wallflower. You had to sort of be prepared to step up and be noticed. And certainly working with horses should make most people understand, you know, their confidence levels. And we have to sort of not boss a horse around, but you certainly, certainly have to take charge of them a little bit. And uh, you have to be able to carry that over to your working life as well. With coaching, a good coach to me is somebody who can put themselves into the shoes of their student and, you know, try to think a little bit how it's how it's coming to them and you know if you don't get a, a good response the first time then perhaps try to explain it a little bit differently and you know see how they learn and try to manufacture the way you give your information in a way that is easy for them to understand so the ability to um, be able to think about how other people see things and how they learn about things mm-hmm. that's another great asset for, for coaching yep. yeah yeah we used to say jokingly down here in Victoria that if you wanted to become a level one you would have to be preferably an event rider with a very bossy nature, and it was a walk in the park okay. in the early days. Yeah, and and do you think that's because Tor was more from a military background and it was more giving commands rather than the communication that's probably more accepted now? Yes, at the beginning it was very much a, a military. Certainly in England, the way we were taught and then later assessed, mm. it was very much a sort of military operation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And whilst, I mean, anyone who's from that era, the, you know, sort of the days of Molly Sivright and all those well-known as British mm-hmm. instructors, they were very much like that, but their bark was far worse than their bite. And they always had a little twinkle in their eye and a bit of a smile going on as they were barking their orders. So they didn't expect you to sort of, you know, not take them too seriously when they you know, barked out the orders. <laughs> and, and I'd like to feel that I'm a little bit like that too. Yep, yep. Okay. You talked about Molly, Molly Sivright. Who else has influenced you? I think as a rider, the two people that have influenced me the most and still do are two people that not a lot of Australians know. And one of them is a chap called Paul Stecken. And he was the head instructor at Vorendorf in Germany for many, many years. I've never met him. Mm-hmm. But I have trained underneath six of his instructors. And it just seems they just kept turning up in my life. You know, mm-hmm. whenever I, I would go somewhere or I think, oh, wow, you know, that sounds like a really good instructor. I'd love to go and work with that person. And there would always be this common denominator. And it was this gentleman called Paul Stecken, who the probably the person that most people would recognize as one of his students is... Um, oh, I've had a mental blank there. Uh, Ingrid Klimke, yes, sorry, okay. Ingrid Klimke. Yep. And her father trained with Paul Stecken. And in Australia, we had 
Edgar Lutzbach and his wife Marion. They were trained by Paul Stetten and Dr. Wolfgang Holzel, who was at one point the coach, the Olympic national coach out here, took our team through to the Seoul Olympics. And I went to train in Germany for some time with another one of Paul Stetten's top pupils at uh, Stor Ramsbach in Germany. And he's just kept popping up in my life. And he has such an amazing influence over mm. the people who've worked with him. Mm. It's, it's mm. just fantastic. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Yep. The other one that has had a great influence on me in the latter part of my career was John Lyon okay. from America. He, I can honestly say, is the reason I'm still in the game now because if you work with horses as a full-time income, you tend to, in Australia, you know, people don't just ring you up and say, look, I've got this amazing horse, it's going beautifully, I can't fault it, would you like to ride it? What they normally do is ring up and tell you, I've got this absolute, you know, bleep, 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 and I don't know what to do with it, and it's, you know, it's being a real pain, would you ride it? And then, of course, you know, it arrives and it, you know, has a whole heap of baggage that it comes through the stable door with. Yep. And John Lyons has been an amazing wealth of knowledge about dealing with these horses that haven't perhaps had the best of starts or something's gone wrong in their lives. And, you know, if you don't do something with them, then they become worthless and then they have to be put down. So, yeah, he's been fantastic in the way that I've learned how to not get hurt myself. Mm-hmm. and to make sure that these horses go on and be rehabilitated. And is there one horse in particular that you've been able to rehabilitate or is there a, a standout horse in your career that you'd like to talk about? Um, well, really, I think they've all been. I mean, every horse teaches you something. And as far as the horse that I have had the best relationship with, has been my old northern horse, Northern Isaiah, and he's now living out his days with a very good friend of mine down in Geelong. And I had him since a three-year-old, and he he's just, it was a super horse. Everybody loved him. He He's well known for being extremely well-behaved. You know, he's one of those horses that you could ride up Birch Street one day and do a dressage test the next day and then take him hunting the next day. You know, he was just a fantastic all-rounder. The other horses, we've we had a bit of a reputation there for a while as being sort of a, a rehab centre for <laughs> Borstal boys. You know, they would come in and they would be, you know, probably dangerous, in fact, almost to the point of being dangerous. And with the help of my husband, um, we've managed to put, send them back out through the gate, to, ready to join society, as you say. You know, mm-hmm. so they could go out and somebody else would now love them because they could work nicely and they knew how to integrate with other horses and how to integrate with humans. So there was a lot, there's been a lot of those. Uh, it's been fantastic. One that springs to mind probably was the saddest case we ever had was a horse called Leo. And he was an extremely expensive thoroughbred, bred on one of Australia's top studs. I think it was like a million-dollar service fee, a huge oh, wow. service fee wow. for this horse. Yeah. And he went for over a million as a young horse sold. Mm, mm. And he ended up on a truck being delivered to our place via a show jumper. And I've never seen a sadder looking case horse basically fall off the back of the truck. Mm. And uh, he was just skin and bone and he just looked terrible. It was was just disgusting. And he had a really big canter stride and it, it had a lot of air in it. And so he hadn't learned to flatten and gallop yep. flat and yep. go fast. Yep. He just 
panted along with everybody else and didn't do very well. So he went from pillar to post and lower and lower and lower and then ended up at um, some show jumping place down in Victoria. And he had obviously had some cattle prodding training methods done on him and he'd been in a bull ring and whipped all sorts of things, trying to get him to jump. And, and even though he was very dangerous to ride, he was the kindest horse on the ground. Mm. It was unbelievable. He, you know, he, you could still do anything with him on the ground, and just once he got on his back, he was just terrified. Mm. Mm. And about three, I think, I think we had him for about three years. Yep. We had Leo for about three years. My husband did most of the riding, and I did the groundwork with him. Mm-hmm. And we sold him to a young lass after three years. We felt he was ready to go out. Yep. And she rode him for a few months and then sold him to a young fellow that lived near her and who was a very good show jumper. He turned out to be a really good show jumper and eventer. And I judged a pony club event up in New South Wales and the first horse down the centre line was Dear Leo. And <sighs> I just, I could barely write the test, you know, I was really quite upset, you know, you know crying because it was so mm. nice. Mm. Lovely to see this horse that... Justin and I honestly thought we might have to chop his head off because wow. he was so dangerous to ride. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So that, that's a good news story. Yeah. Very good. It was a lovely story. Yeah. 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 It was lovely to, to see him out there, you know, taking his place mm. in a pony club one day event. Yeah. Okay. Thinking about, you know, the rehabilitation you've done, I want you to put on a coach's hat and think about more of a prevention. You know, what sort of things do you see? that can cause confusion in the horse. You know, you might see it common and you think, I've got to fix that problem before it gets any worse. What what sort of problem would it be and how would you fix it? What I see with the younger riders when I say teach at Pony Club and Mm. I know a lot of my coaches that I train go on to teach at Pony Club, I think the biggest problem they all come back to me with, oh, if only we could stop this, is the young rider's perception of roundness or putting the horse on the bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that pony club and adult riding clubs, and and they must have a similar problem there too, they write their tests using the jargon or the conversation that we have in the EA tests or SEI tests that they're dealing with a group of people who have no understanding of the concept of putting a horse on the bit. And it is still incredibly common. You know, I will go into the middle of the ring at a pony club with a group of riders perhaps I don't know, and I'll introduce myself and I'll say, now, what would you like me to help you with today? What would you like to get from your lesson today? And it can be children as young as 10 or 11 years of age riding grade four ponies And the first thing they'll say, I want to know how to pull his head in. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, I just think, oh, my goodness, you know, you just have to take a big breath and then try to come up with a way of describing what they're looking at and dispelling the myth about pulling the head in. This is something that we have a big problem with in Australia, this, this ability to teach novice riders, that's whether they're young or old, doesn't matter, novice riders that, that horses have to be ridden from the back to the front. Now, that being said, a lot of these horses that people use to, to start their riding career on aren't 
soft enough in the mouth to give them a good feeling for that. So they also, as riders, they need to understand that they need to go to a coach that can train the horse and the rider at the same time. It's not just about learning to kick and pull anymore. We have to move on from that old-fashioned way of looking at riding. Yep, yep. For my coaches that I train, you know, they're way past that, obviously. But I just say to them, be prepared. This is what you're going to get. Make sure you've got a really good answer that's going to inspire the riders to change the way they look at that. Mm, mm. Is it the main thing that you teach your coaches? Is there anything else that commonly a beginner coach would have a problem? You know, just never taught before. This is their first bit of training with you. What's a common problem that you see? The other thing is that most riders don't get the opportunity to teach groups mm-hmm. enough. Yep. A lot of riders don't learn in a group themselves. And we'll always, you know, this is pretty expected and it's a good way. When you become want to become a coach, you're going to basically say how you were taught. You're going to teach along the lines that you were taught. Mm. Um, that's your knowledge, and that's what you're going to draw on. And if you've had mainly private lessons, you'll find it at first quite difficult to teach groups. This is, again, something that throughout the coaching accreditation scheme, most riders and junior coaches have learned in, in a one-on-one basis, and they've got to somehow transfer their ability to teach. Most of them are quite good. Mm. and their knowledge is good. Yep. You know, it's, it's just brushing up, really. Yeah. But their skills at managing groups is only through lack of opportunity, and uh, they're the ones that they, they need to work on first and foremost. Get your skills up on group management, mm-hmm. getting the ride safely from A to B, using the markers in the arena, using all the arena tracks, be clear, precise, give the riders plenty of warning, all those sorts of things. That that actually takes quite a long time to get going. Yep. Once the junior coaches have that operating, usually their knowledge is well up to scratch. Okay. Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory with practical components that can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Thanks. Now, have you got a book that you'd recommend? I don't know about recommending one particular book, but I am a very keen fan on anything that Jane Savoy has written on the stage. She's got lots of, I think she must have at least five books out now and she also has really good DVD and CD programs and she has little videos, uh, clips on YouTube which are free to access and she has a website and, you know, get on a newsletter. Now she herself, she's a very good coach Mm -hmm. and she has, um, the Americans are very good at chunking things down into bite-sized pieces so that when you're training a horse or you're training a rider, a really great way of giving you step by step, you know, like a recipe yes. to gaining a good goal or gaining a good outcome. And she's one of the best. I've spent a bit of time with her in the States and she's excellent. So for someone who wants to have help not only training their horses and they, you know, can't just keep jumping in the car and floating whizzing off every five minutes, she's a great mentor and coach to have in your phone or in your computer 
were on a book, in a book, yeah. yeah. And books and DVDs and everything, they're always a good compliment, aren't they? You know, like you said, they're not going to replace the actual putting the horse on a float and going out and getting a lesson or whatever, but they're always just that extra knowledge is a compliment yep, yep. to training and riding. Yeah. Yep. When I was training as a coach, mm. both here in Australia and in England, I would have a lesson and we'd cover a topic and then I would go home and read up about it because, you know, you've got a lot going on in a lesson. You know, you've got yes. to control your horse, you've got to control everything, you know, your thinking, what you're doing, try to react quickly to what the instructor's asking you to do. And then I would go home and I would write some notes and then I would read up about that particular topic and it all went, ah, that's what they meant by that. And and that's why we had to do it that way. And, yeah, so yep. so it really, as you say, it's a great support and backup to mm. um, actual lessons, yes. All right. Amanda, what are you looking forward to? What does your future hold? Um, well, I've got a super horse. Yep. At the moment, you know, at a time of life when I perhaps should have been buying a, a sports car and, you know, dashing <laughs> off on holidays. What, what's your <laughs> horse's spent money name? On a really super, yep. <laughs> the horse is called Flintstone B and he was bred by Stade in Holland and uh, found for us by a very good friend, a, a guy from Shepparton who now works and lives in Holland. Mm-hmm. We bought him as a young horse and brought him out here. And he's, yes, he's been a, you know, he's a little bit of a challenge from time to time. I mean, he's got a lot of presence about him. And the thing that gives a horse presence is a little bit of attitude. Yep. But he always gives you a good ride okay. at the end of the day. You know, yep. sometimes we have a little discussion and then it's always good. Good, good. He's super. So uh, he's currently training medium. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm looking forward to starting him in a sort of FEI in the not too distant future. Good. That's for him, yep. and also we'll be uh, we, we've just retired one of the FEI horses, and we're on the lookout at the moment for another one. So <laughs> okay. uh, that's always okay. fun to go looking, go shopping for those. Good. So that's that's what we're up to at the moment. Good, good. All right. Look, can you sum up your philosophy into a lesson today? Just think about your overall philosophy of things, and if you put it into a lesson for people to take away, and they can um, learn from this interview and they'll go and think about it for the day? I think that one of the things that has always worked well for me working in the industry is always be prepared to have a look at what's working for someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, don't get too, oh, this is my system and, you know, I'm only learning this and this is what I do. Um, I'm probably one of the few people who swap from the classical training to, I guess the best way to describe it to people who are not familiar with it, is the more natural horsemanship. But I overlay one with the other because the end result has to be, you know, X. If you're a dressage rider, it has to be this. And you can't, you know, don't ride dressage tests in a bitless bridle. So I am always prepared to have a look at what else is out there that's working for other people and to have a look and observe what they do. So... Always look for answers in unusual places. That's been my philosophy. You know, I've worked with some really amazing trainers like Bill Roycroft and Wolfgang Holtzel and Edgar and people like that. And they are such thinking trainers. They they will always say, ah, you know, but they'll, they'll say, you know, that's so interesting. I learned something from that lesson. And they're the one you're paying the money for and they give, you know, they're giving you the lesson. But they'll say, oh, but I learned something from that lesson. Mm. So um, your, your students will teach you as well as, you know, your, um, your trainers. 
I like the way you said, look for answers in unusual places. It, it's almost a quote in itself. It's good. Yeah. 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 I think that is the thing is that, you know, if you can stand back and just, you know, well, we'll see where this is going to take us or mm. go and look at something a bit different. Yep. And you'll think, wow, I can use that. Yeah. That would help. I can see that exercise working with me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great way of thinking, yeah. Two of the things that really helped me with, with horses that you've got to remember that there's a physical side and a mental side to training and teaching and coaching. And sometimes I give a lesson and I'll come away and I think, you know, that lesson probably would have come under the heading of psychological help rather than physical help. So sometimes you're, you know, you're you're going to have to look at things and say, well, you know, I'm going to be a little bit of a psychologist to my pupil today rather than a an actual, um, you know, riding teacher. And then also looking at the mental side, the way the horses learn too, is you know, never underestimate the way horses learn. Mm. The more you learn about how they learn, the quicker your journey will be. Yep. Yep. So it's you know, always thinking about. You know, the physical side and balancing it with the mental side, not only with the teaching but also with the training. Yes. All right. Amanda, how can people contact you? Well, I have a Facebook page yes. called Jandra Equestrian. Yep. J-A-A-N-D-A, Jandra Equestrian. Or they can find me on the EA Coaches website yep. under Amanda Hocking. And they both those places have got all our details and our contact details, phone numbers, email addresses, etc. Yeah, and I'd be very happy to hear from anyone. Okay, and we'll also put your details on horsechats.com slash Amanda Hocking. So right. they'll be there as well. Look, it's been wonderful good. talking to you today. It's been it's been very good. I think I've written down a couple of quotes, you know, you like you came along with a favourite quote, but there, you also had a couple of other, quite a few other quotes yeah, I was a bit scribbling. I'll have to go back and read this and pick up all your quotes. I think I enjoyed them. <laughs> okay, I'll talk to you a bit later then. Thank you. Thank you very much, Glenn. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 